0: Welcome to episode 7 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. In this month's episode, we'll be talking about the women's strike that's taking place on International Women's Day on the 8th of March, with a broader look as well at some of the key ideas that are propelling this day of action. Taking part in the discussion from Pluto are Emily Orford and myself, Chris Brown, and we're very excited to have two very special guests joining us as well who are going to lead the discussion today Camille Barbagallo a national organiser for the Women's Strike UK and editor of Women and the Subversion of the Community, which is forthcoming from PM Press this year, and Tithi Bhattacharya, a national organiser for the IWS in the US and editor of the new book Social Reproduction Theory, Remapping Class, Recentering Oppression. So thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit more about yourselves and giving our listeners an idea of what's happening on the 8th of March and why it's taking place.
1: Thanks so much for um, inviting me on the show today. Um, I'm uh, currently working pretty much full-time organising the women's strike in the UK. There wasn't so much happening in the United Kingdom last year. Um, I was actually in the States uh, for the last International Women's Day uh, women's strike. But I'm also, you know, doing the usual thing, as many uh, women are, across the world of juggling motherhood, precarious employment, uh, and trying desperately to see a film
2: every now and again. (laughs) Wonderful. So we had the first um, international call, which involved um, IWS organizers from 45 different countries um, about two weeks ago, and that sort of um, set off the organizing process in the U.S., Um, For March 8th, and obviously um, in the U.S. um, this year, it has a much more sharpened um, urgency to talking about gender and race um, um, and in terms of actually uh, resisting the attacks that have come down uh, on questions of gender and race in the last one year. So I think March 8th this year is um, going to be A very important um, intervention in sort of what we hope is a rising global feminist movement that is not just about feminism, but it is also deeply anti-capitalist in nature. So, like Camille, um, I have been doing my teaching and my picking up of my child and uh, organizing the women's strike, but I think um, in the U.S., because of the History from last year, we have very luckily a very rudimentary but um, somewhat of a rickety but still there infrastructure. So we have um, organizers for the strike in most of the major cities in the US, but also in smaller towns and so on. So we just had uh, the second national call for it and it's very, very exciting.
1: I noticed that um, in quite a number of those small towns, in fact, uh, the women's marches on January 21st uh, were actually bigger this year than they were last year. Um, I was living in upstate New York last year and Seneca Falls, which is the birthplace of the white women's movement in the US, and obviously probably needs to be recognised as having a somewhat uneven uh, kind of relationship uh, to the present in terms of um, Susan B. Anthony's grave is there and played a lot of role in kind of liberal feminists kind of remembering of Hillary um, and her losing. Uh, but uh, I noticed that last year we had about 7,000 on the streets, but
2: this year it was 15,000, um, which seems uh, incredible, actually. So, I mean, that's almost the entire population of Seneca Falls, right? And, and then some. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I think... Um, it was 80,000 in New York and similarly huge numbers in um, LA, in Chicago. So one of the things we did um, on the second national call of IWS was actually have an assessment of January 21st and the Women's March. And <clears throat> it is undoubtedly one of the most significant mass mobilizations in U.S. history since last year, actually. Last year, nearly four million people marched on the street for women's rights. I mean, this is absolutely unprecedented in recent U.S. history, actually in U.S. history. Um, So this year, again, I think, as I said before, that people are so angry about the absurdity of the Trump administration vis-a-vis almost every area of our lived experience, of our lives, that people are looking for a chance to hit the streets. And this is where I think um, we had a very productive discussion about the leadership of the Women's March and the people who came out for the Women's March because I think we need to have a conversation about that distinction because a lot of criticism and some of it very, very... Important and significant has been raised about the leadership of the Women's March. For instance, in the West Coast, Palestinian women have pulled out of the organizing for January 21st because Scarlett Johansson, who is a big advertiser for Israel and uh, settler colonialism, was one of the invited speakers. Also in Philadelphia, the Women's March. Organizers um, encouraged or <laughs> I- I deployed um, police to uh, sort of um, staff the march, etc., which you know in the American context sends a very clear message about mass incarceration and police violence against people of color, particularly African American sisters and brothers. So, so those criticisms, withstanding, how do we use the energy? of 80,000 people in New York, of 90% of people in Seneca Falls coming into the street. So we cannot afford to, as feminists and activists, to actually stay away from this organizing. So I think what the IWS organizers did was actually, um, to me, the most important thing to do in this context, that we did have a very clear disagreement with the politics of the leadership. But what we did was we intervened in the march as IWS. Camille's banner was just amazing. And it's you know all over social media that we strike for March 8th. And similar things happened in New York. Um, the New York um, IWS comrades gave out 6,000 leaflets for IWS, and they were all received with great joy by, by the population. So, you know, I think we need to actually work with the people who came out for the Women's March while maintaining and never abandoning our uh, criticism of the politics of the leadership.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because in the UK, certainly the numbers weren't as big as they were last year. I think it took everyone a bit by surprise when 50,000 people came out on the streets on January 21st in a, in a different country to protest Trump. Um, and I think there's real questions for the radical left here about orientating towards the US presidency as the kind of figure um, when he's not even here. Um, I think when he comes, I think he should be given, obviously, a um, fantastic unwelcome. But I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a funny kind of moment around the hegemony of US um, politics in general when the radical left here seems really orientated towards kind of anti-Trump politics, when obviously we have our very own uh, problems here in the form of Theresa May um, and the kind of politics that uh, her government's been pursuing. And I think also there's there's something around the UK movement at the moment in terms of the feminist movement where I think your point around walking towards the feminist movement as it currently exists, and, but not being under any illusions around some of the conditions of its leadership and some of the tensions that exist. Uh, certainly over the last year we've seen quite a large backlash, I would say, and it's been really ugly um, in certain sections of the feminist movement against um, trans women's rights and trans women's inclusion uh, within British feminism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that we've really taken seriously within the Women's Strike Assembly um, in the UK around insisting that there is no debate, uh, actually, and that by constantly repositioning um, questions of gender identity as a debate, it's a form of dog whistle politics, mm-hmm. really, that really lays the groundwork for some of the massive increases in violence that we see um, enacted on trans women's bodies. So I think, yeah, there's these, there's these quite interesting roles for the Women's Strike uh, to maintain certain particular political positions and and maintain uh, a certain line, but not with the view of, pure politics. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like in terms of the spaces in which we work within actually the women's movement I think is one of the only social movements going at the moment mm-hmm. uh, and social movements are by their very nature uneven and messy and certainly far from pure um, and they they definitely require us to walk towards them uh, and not stand on the sidelines and, and one day hope for the kind of perfect social movement to arrive. Mm-hmm. But that being said, uh, there's still some pretty big fights to be had. <laughs> mm-hmm. It might be good at this point to think about why the strike is necessary because people might say well the women's march has already happened you know there's a movement around that and now there's another action happening uh, the women's strike Um, and uh, what differentiates the two movements and why is the strike in itself as an action on, on one day important
2: I want to start by going back to something that Camille said, which was very interesting, where you pointed out, Camille, that um, it was um, kind of curious and interesting that uh, the radical left in the UK were talking about Trump in a way. But um, to me, it seems to a certain extent that Trump has become symbolic almost, you know, sort of not simply a person, but has become symbolic of the moment of sort of late neoliberal Unraveling in in a certain sense. So he's a placeholder almost, a protest placeholder for the rise of the new rise all over um, the world, actually, all the way from Narendra Modi to Germany. Um, the rise of Islamophobia and the rise of this sort of backlash misogyny that um, we have been seeing around the world and and of which anti-immigration and borders are are a very strong um, component. So Trump has become that sort of thing where the sort of also the veins of connection between the ruling class and the policies of the ruling class across nations, is coming to the fore in that sense. And the reason I bring this up is, um, to go back to, Emily, your question, that one of the things I think all of us grappled with and sort of came to a common consensus about is the feminist movement cannot, by necessity, just be about women's issues. Because really, if you think about it, Capitalism operates in a very gendered manner, so most things are actually women's issues, right? So this connection between what used to be thought as women's issues or what liberal feminists want to be women's issues, I think was something that we wanted to break very clearly that actually um, universal health care, universal education, public transport, these are all women's issues because they impact gender and race differentially right so so it has a differential impact because of social relations so these are all women's issues which brings back to the question you asked about why the women's march or what distinguishes the women's march from the women's strike i think is precisely along those lines because the women's march if you see the leadership of the women's march very clearly said it was the Women's March and had a slightly amorphous approach to both what the march was going to achieve, but also what the march was about. We worked very closely with the leadership of the women's March. We had several conferences with them, and, you know, um some of them challenging, but mostly collaborative, even though we had very sharp political differences. But so in other words, we actually know where they were coming from as as a leadership. So it was not an anecdotal thing that um, I'm relating. And the question was that the women's March did not want to take up issues of uh, trans. Uh, women's rights, did not want to take up Palestine and those kind of things at the beginning. And they were actually pushed towards it because women's march politics in a diffuse manner seemed to be about women's participation in capitalism, right? So the more... The empowerment, the, the very word and the concept of empowerment coming from the leadership of the Women's March was empowerment in the sort of track of Hillary Clinton or Sheryl Sandberg. So empowerment literally meant capitalist power. Okay, So more participation in the workings of capitalism was the path to power. This was the politics of the uh, women's march. In one of our conversations, one of the organizers of the women's march said to us, "Well, you know, we have a we have a slight problem with the concept of the strike because against the new administration, the Trump administration, corporations are going to be our first line of defense." And so, and that's where, you know, my co-organizer, Cinzia Rutsa, and I said, well, I think we have a sharp difference within, in that position, but let's try to figure out a way to work together uh, uh, still having that that difference. So to go back to your question, how is the women's strike distinguish itself from the uh, Women's March? It is very clearly an anti-capitalist feminist um, intervention into the feminist movement that the problems that we see are problems of gender and race do not come from individual men. Although individual men are very much the bearers of the problem, but the problem is systemic. So we cannot have a movement that takes up the battle against Harvey Weinstein, but does not understand that the reason sexual harassment is rampant in the workplace is because women are more vulnerable because of low wages so the job becomes the most important thing that will sustain her. And so whatever happens in the job, she cannot do anything about and and protest against because she has her family to feed. And that low-wage job is the only barrier between her and destitution and her family's destitution. On top of that, even if she could afford to give up the job, okay, because the sexual harassment was so rampant, where are the social services that would actually sustain her between the leaving of one job and the getting of other? In America, that is a barren landscape. So we're talking about issues of health care, issues of education, issues of child care, all of these things being actually Directly women's issues, the lack of which allows the rampant sexual harassment to take place um, in in the workplace along with low wages. So I think pulling these uh, movements together, I see as the project of IWS.
1: I think also um, in the UK, a lot of us have been experimenting over the last couple of years with um, concepts of the social strike and really trying to think about what does it mean to strike today? Um, And that kind of question, I think, really faces, I think, in the UK, an industrial landscape where trade union membership has totally plummeted in the private sector and is kind of barely hanging on um, with some pretty ineffective leadership uh, in the public sector. And so over the last 10 years, as we've watched the Tories um, push further the... New Labour's kind of plans and deepen them in only the way that the Tories ever could. We've really, I think, come up against this problem of how do we actually build and have leverage to um, fight against the politics of austerity? Um, how do we stop them taking things away from us? You can't occupy against the cuts. Uh, in, 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 and so we've been really confronted by some lack of working class power, basically. And I think in trying to pose that question of what does it mean to strike today, we ultimately ultimately come to gendered and racialized subjects. Uh, like, you cannot escape the question um, of feminism and of anti-racist politics when it comes to that kind of question today. When we look at who it is that are low-waged workers in the United Kingdom, they are overwhelmingly women and they are overwhelmingly people of colour and migrants. Also, I think this question of how do we strike today is being answered in a variety of different contexts. So there are base unions that have been set up outside of the official trade union structures, United Voices of the World, um, IWGB, who are currently at the forefront of winning the living wage campaigns for migrant cleaners and migrant workers at our university campuses and in various other kind of industries. And those kind of like laboratories, I think we could think about, uh, for me, is about then how do we link up that kind of experimentation with what is currently one of the largest social movements um, that certainly doesn't just exist in the United Kingdom and the US, but we've seen explode in other parts of the world in, in really interesting ways. So uh, in Poland, uh, millions of women coming out. Uh, against attempts to criminalise abortion in Latin American countries, movements around gendered violence, but really with a structural and systemic understanding of violence. And so for me as a feminist who grew up in the 90s, who was saturated with the kind of politics of ending male violence against individual women, the, the new red horizon of being able to understand violence in a systemic and structural way seems to me to be one of the like really key kind of interventions that the strike is trying to make. That violence is Economic, that it's institutional, and it's also personal.
2: So, to add to that, um, my experience of the 90s is slightly different from (laughs) yours, although, you know, I became political in the 90s as well. Um, My experience is very much um, that there is this thing called class and it is the most important thing in the whole world and it determines everything. And this class is never actually explained or instantiated in living material ways, the way, say, for instance, E.P. Thompson's work did or, you know, that there are actually people and these people's experience is important in the way... class may be an objective thing, but people's experience of it, and hence resistance to it or, you know, whatever, is actually shaped by lived experience of the people in the class. This is not to say good research didn't happen in the 90s uh, about class, but I think the general consensus in the left was about uh, the, there was a, Clear hierarchy between class and oppression, and class was primary. I think I buy the idea that class is primary and it is a universalizing um, category um, that um, you know, within the capitalist social system. But I do not no longer buy the idea that um, the relationship between class, race, and gender is a hierarchical relationship. I think it's a Co constitutive relationship. That's the way I see it. If we want to think of class in, in a primary sense, which I don't particularly object to, however, we have to understand that class itself is formed through the formation of gender, race, and this is why oppression is something that is actually absolutely necessary to capitalism. And we cannot think about capitalism without forms of oppression and co- continuously. Um, developing forms of oppression which kind of um, brings us back to this question of the strategic way this theoretical concept applies because when you say um, that the landscape is denuded in a way of um, organized responses to capitalism from the working class which for the longest time used to be the trade unions you know the, the schools for struggle for the primary school where the working class learned to struggle that the union density has been falling globally, you know, since uh, for the last 40 years. So these kind of organs of struggle have been broken by a global uh, ruling class initiative, you know, Thatcher to Reagan to whoever. But that has also not prompted most sections of the left to think of class struggle in a different way, right? So with the women's strike, I think some of the questions raised about IWS in the U.S. was, oh, why are you calling it a strike since it's not in the workplace, right? And that's where we were very clear that we wanted to call it a strike, partly because It was in international solidarity with our Polish, Argentinian, Italian comrades who actually called it a strike. And so we were, you know, in a way standing with that idea. And in Italy, actually, several trade unions um, actually went on strike. So, you know, but. We were not using the word strike only in this weak sense that we were standing with, you know, our sisters uh, internationally. We were also using it in the strong sense that women's labor did not just happen in the workplace. Every morning when you wake up and you get your child ready for school, that is women's labor. Every evening when you pick up your child, bring her home, and then uh, cook dinner, that's women's labor. So, for instance, in my so-called conservative red state of Indiana... The Women's Strike was organized brilliantly by um, several women in this small, you know, university town community, sort of like Seneca Falls. And one of the things they did was so brilliant was um, they composed a letter that they put up on their website and sort of distributed uh, locally, which was a model letter that um, women could give their Partners, the day of the strike when they left and went on strike and went, like, into the march. So it was a letter, basically. The synopsis of the letter would be, Honey, you have the dishes. I'm going on strike. You know, so, I mean, they, they, these were very important interventions that I think we are trying to bring back again with the question of a social strike and the question of a political strike, that this is a political intervention that may not be based in in the workplace. And in that, I think there are two further things I want to say. One is that some of the major upheavals and social um, revolutions and political revolutions of the modern era, two of the Biggest, the French and the Russian started off not in the workplace, but with women demanding bread on the streets of Moscow and Petrograd and Paris. So it was actually bread riots led by women that sparked off the two major revolutions of the modern era. And the second thing is that I think it's a very mechanical idea that if The social movement or the question of a strike is initiated in the non-workplace zone that it cannot organically move back into the workplace. That makes absolutely no sense to me because it would depend on the issues, wouldn't it? That what kind of issues are being raised in the strike in a general sense, if it is about Medicare, it's about Medicaid, it's about sexual violence, then of course women in the workplace will use that energy to think about how to change things in their workplace. And this actually happened in the U.S. So the women's strike began, um, obviously, on the street and in non-workplace areas. And on the day, the day before, actually, lo and behold, three entire school districts, two of them in anti-union right-to-work states, three entire school districts, basically women teachers, said we are not going to work. So the school districts closed down. So, I mean, this rather strange and mechanical division about struggle, that struggle is somehow, you know, hemmed in or walled in (laughs) like nations, and um, it can only begin in the workplace and then spread to the local areas, um, is, is absurd. And I think, The left particularly needs to revisit that concept because the times for building workplace organisation is very urgent and it cannot be built with such a mechanical thinking about the workplace, really.
1: Yeah, fighting with uh, Marxist bros about uh, this not being a real strike was a real highlight of 2017 for me. And certainly what I used to say to those blokes was, what do you gain from holding on to the concept or a definition of a strike in in, in your definition, in, in that kind of way? And also... Ha- this is an anti-capitalist, revolutionary critique of the trade union failure of reducing industrial struggle to the employment contract, as if our lives are defined by just what happens at work. I hope as the years go on and we continue to do this, not just on International Women's Day, but maybe at other times of the year and flexing the kind of the women's strike muscle um, that we will um, eventually actually just win that argument. I think we will. I think history's on our side. Um, <laughs> But I think what you're saying about... The contagion of this moment, I think, is really interesting and that it shows up some of the the way in which the binary of the private and the public, in fact, is actually we find the public in the private and we find the private in the public in terms of our different ideas or the domestic sphere. And I think the women's strike for me is really trying to point to an answer with a kind of red feminist uh, answer, I would say, not a liberal feminist answer. This question of what's happened to social reproduction over the last 40 years as well, because whilst we are taking our kids to school and picking them up at some time, that time has usually been elongated. I, this morning, dropped my kid at a breakfast club uh, so that I could be late to record this podcast, (laughs) despite all my best intentions. And I think that being able to think through and and act on the commodification that has become pass and parcel with the last 40 years in terms of uh, in the United Kingdom now we have a massive increase of people using domestic uh, workers in their homes and uh, using commodified uh, social reproductive activities like grabbing a ready meal on the way home from work that's made in a factory by migrant workers who are not paid a, um, a living wage. And all of the ways in which women's work within the waged workforce has has, has been made possible through the, f- the further commodification of everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, it's about uh, really trying to unravel some of those kind of myths of, of liberal feminism, where waged work was meant to deliver us something. And it delivered some women some things. And I think we need to be clear about the kind of class difference uh, around what's happened over the last 40 years, when we look at things from the position of reproduction. But for Lots of women, more and more work, uh, badly paid, non-unionised uh, work that continues to be devalued and hence un- uh, lowly paid, certainly hasn't been the delivering us from the the drudgery of the domestic kind of housewife role. In fact, it's kind of uh, institutionalised housework, uh, waged housework, which I think is one of those ways in which history. Uh, Um, And when we look back at different feminist movements, we got wages for housework uh, in the end in lots of different ways. But we just got really low wages because what what didn't happen along the way when everything got bought and sold under neoliberalism is that we didn't revalue um, reproduction. It, It remained women's work and it remained devalued in a really profound kind of way. And so I think... For me, the Women's Strike is a laboratory for us to try to work out how to actually tackle those kind of issues. Like, we don't have the answers at this point because, uh, amazingly, I don't think a feminist movement will be telling women to go back into the home. We have feminist movements in the 1960s and 70s that tell us what happens when capital removes half of the workforce and, and confines them in the domestic sphere and then all that you get offered is glorification of your role but no social support or help. But certainly more and more waged work... Um, also is not the answer, especially when we bring those questions of women's work both inside the home and outside of the home and confront them with the impending uh, ecological collapse uh, that the kind of accelerationist kind of if we just have more and more robots and more and more work, then everything will be fine kind of version of the future. And I think that for me, one of the really important kind of processes that this Really messy and uneven social movement is bringing up is the international aspect, um, where if we were simply just thinking about the United Kingdom, then maybe we could solve some of these questions like we solved them when we had colonial frontiers and a whole variety of other kind of historical moments. But I think an international movement requires us to think about uh, migration flows around the world, ecological destruction that continues seemingly uh, without any kind of end in sight, where other people's resources are ripped out of the earth so that we can all have iPhones and iPads uh, here in the global north. So I think those kind of questions are, for me, where anti-capitalism meets an international movement and actually starts to provide leadership around questions around how do we tackle climate change? How we tackle climate change is by thinking about the gendered and racialized nature of how work is currently being organized across the globe.
2: Right. And um, I think the a question of social reproduction is um, I have always held that it's not that we do not have public kitchens that provide food, but we have public kitchens that provide food for the rich. They're called restaurants, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that we do not have world-class health care. We do in the United States but the vast majority of people cannot access it. So the question is about, in a way, first reversing and then pushing back, first reversing the privatization of care and social reproduction that happened throughout the period of neoliberalism. This is important because I think many people think that all social reproduction have been cut. They haven't been cut. The parks still exist Uh, healthcare still exists, public transport still exists. They've just been privatized. So that the question of social reproduction have been pushed onto individual families. Okay. And within those individual family units, it's obviously always women who bear the brunt of the uh, social reproduction work. And the public services that have been cut have also impacted women Um, differentially in the sense that public services are often run, uh, are heavily uh, women work in those services like healthcare and education. So, you know, uh, when Rahm Emanuel closes schools across the Chicago South side, women are impacted both as wage workers because they're teachers in these schools, but also as moms and caregivers of their children who go to these schools. So both of those are um, affected. So I think the attack of neoliberalism or the neoliberalization of the world was absolutely, without a doubt, first on the workplace, breaking unions. That was the first uh, step, you know, breaking the Patco strike um, in in the United States, breaking the miners' strike in the United Kingdom, breaking the huge textile workers and railway workers' strike in India, just to name a few examples. Those were the birthing moments of the neoliberal um, order. But after the working classes, organizing tools had been broken in the workplace, it's not that they left the organs of social reproduction alone. That's when the privatization of the parks and the social services and the cutting of social services began in most of them. So to go back to the question of the workplace organizing and the non-workplace organizing, if capital was only concerned with wage work and lowering wage work, That would be just possible with breaking all the unions. You could just leave it at that. But actually, not having health care, not having access to social services makes the worker far more vulnerable at the workplace than just not having a trade union, right? So that is a vital, actually critical role that social reproduction as a theory, as well as a practice, as a practical means, plays in the construction of working class lives and actually weaves together the reason we need to think about workplaces as not isolated, you know, sort of um, magical seeds of revolution, like, you know, some fairy tale, but actually as one part of the totality of capitalism, of which the other parts are uh, very, very important. The workplace is, I think, the older left focused on the workplace for one good reason, which is this is where we have collective power right so it absolutely makes sense it's much easier to work organize in the workplace than in a sense in a diffuse sense of a community right so because we are a collective presence in in the workplace which we d- are not always easily in, in a non-workplace situation. But I use the word easily very decidedly because all the recent struggles under neoliberalism have been, the biggest ones, have been community struggles, right? So it's been against water charges, against sexual violence, and, and so on. And the best of them have flourished because trade unions have come around to, to support them and thus, you know, making it a stronger movement in that sense. But actually, in some of them, the trade unions have not participated, but it has been fine. You know, working class women and and men in their communities have fought against the privatization of water or fought against um, criminalization and abortion and have won, right? So I think that's one part of the organizing question. The other part is, if you are going to organize a union in this time and place and you forget about the non-workplace, you are doomed. It's not going to happen. Because if you look at the history of the first efforts to organize unions, at least in the U.S. and India, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, the organizing began in non-workplace spaces because there are no unions. So uh, workers had to be... um, organized in the first place in community halls, in their homes, etc. And this brings us to Emily's question about the origins of uh, March 8th, right? It was young women... Immigrant, mostly Polish, Jewish in New York, who basically was going against the trend because the leading trade unions were saying women cannot be organized. So it was these women, young, very young women that organized against, you know, terrible working conditions. And after the horrible um, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York, that they organized their first union of militant workers. But did not abandon or evacuate their identity as women, that this was very, very important. So that's how the first unions came about in the early 20th century in in the U.S., but also in the 30s. The CIO could only build because they operated on the basis of social power. So they organized within working-class communities, not just in, in the workplace. So I think that... Mechanical division is not just harmful for theory, but it is not going to build union power in this day and age
1: your point is that we can't actually build unions and union power if we don't think about the non workplace spaces but we also can't even conceive of what a strike would look like if we don't think of those non workplace spaces and we also never have been able to like it's such a strange reading of our history as the working class in terms of how we have won um, it's not just about strike funds it's about how do we get the food to people who are on strike how do we make sure that their kids are continued to look after how can they afford their rent and those kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that families across the UK are currently facing because of the introduction of things like the universal credit, uh, which has thrown huge amounts of people into homelessness and relying on food banks. And so, like I was saying before, I think that the women's strike for me ends up being a laboratory space where we get to experiment and and prefigure and kind of try out a whole variety of kind of organising practices and processes that'll be incredibly useful as we kind of move off into the second decade of austerity in the United Kingdom. Um, On the day, on March the 8th, in the UK, uh, there's going to be women's strike assembly points in lots of different cities. At the moment, as of January, we have two spaces that'll uh, have assembly points. One will be in London at 1pm in Russell Square and the other will be in Birmingham, in central Birmingham, um, around the same time. But what we're also likely to see happening on that day uh, in the UK is other workplaces and other spaces being in motion and in struggle and other events. So just recently the... Academics Union and universities, the UCU, uh, have balloted for and won a strike vote. They will begin striking on uh, February twenty second and twenty third over the question of pensions. And when we look at that campaign that the union's been running, it's questions of gender that have been like so prevalent and and at the forefront of actually what it is that finally pushed a workforce that you know have historically not been at the forefront of militant uh, trade union struggle uh, into what is now um, a, a strategy of escalating strike action. First week, two days strike action, second week, three days, up up to four weeks, and then an all-out strike by academics across the UK. What we could see is a, a bringing together of the women's strike and the closing down of university campuses across the UK on March the 8th. Obviously, we hope that the... Uh, the enemy craves uh, before then, and we won't need to see that, but we also know how ruthless the managers of the higher education sector are, so we're not holding our breath for them uh, to be handing out any kind of favours around pensions anytime soon. But also in the last two days, uh, the United Voices of the World, who've been leading struggles at the London School of Economics and also at the Department of Justice and also at the Daily Mail, three very uh, distinct kind of areas of uh, organising, have joined the Women's Strike as well. They had a meeting yesterday and agreed on that Um, and also the national campaign against fees and cuts yesterday also uh, signed on to the women's strike. So this is only just at January. We've got another six weeks uh, to go and we're expecting to see many more organisations and groups and unions come on board, both in an official capacity and also probably um, in some instances in an unofficial capacity. The British Trade Union movement's not quite ready for the political strike, but uh, <laughs> give us another 12 months and I'm sure we will have uh, talked around old Len. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I can say today that Pluto Press will be shutting their offices and we're very excited to join everyone in central London and be on strike.
0: (laughs) And what can people expect on the day itself in terms of, I guess, the kind of actual action itself, but also in terms of provision? I'm thinking the practical side of things as well, if people want to come along but they've got childcare concerns, that sort of thing.
1: So in the Women's Strike Assembly, we've been um, having a lot of discussions about the impossibility of the Women's Strike. The women's strike is actually impossible, and that's actually why it's so necessary. And it's impossible because we can't stop all of the work of of women's work for one day. Single mothers, uh, people who don't have male partners, there are a whole variety of people for whom um, social reproduction cannot stop. But it's confronting that impossibility that makes the women's strike for me so exciting and so interesting. So, on the day on the 8th of March at 1pm, there'll be a kids' program running um, at the Assembly. Um, Um, Male comrades of mine have already started organising with circus performers and woodcraft folk and doing urban forest school, so it won't just be the normal leftist kind of here's some crayons from the bottom of my bag uh, (laughs) childcare because actually children are a part of this struggle as well um, and are a central part of it and are themselves political actors and their involvement in politics I think is um, a, a really key step forward instead of just seeing them as dependents and people who just receive care. We'll also be operating uh, collective food for the day um, so people will be able to just come along and be fed for the day and get involved in food production. Obviously, this is a role for our male comrades, really. Uh, uh, We're open to people of all genders attending the strike but we respectfully kind of request that our male comrades take on the work that women often do within the left to make struggle and social movements possible. And considering that that's actually an immense amount of work, there is a huge amount that men have to do on March the 8th. Uh, You can hold up half the world for the day. (laughs) Um, And so childcare, food provision, also legal um, support will be there and also first aid. In uh, London, sex workers have also called for a sex work strike. That sex work strike uh, will manifest in Soho, in the traditional red light district of uh, London, at 7pm. Sex workers will lead that demonstration, but it will be, again, open to all genders and all professions. Have a look on strikefordecrim.org. The sex worker rights organisations have written a pretty amazing uh a statement about how the criminalisation of sex work is the same kind of logic that denies women bodily autonomy and denies them the control over what they do with their bodies and also their ability to say no. So it's really thinking through the links between the recent Me Too accusations uh, against important men and thinking about how women's conditions are, uh, and our experiences of sex and sexuality are intimately tied up with our labour exploitation. And so, So through the course of the day, starting at 1pm, all the way through the afternoon, there'll be actions and events happening across the city, culminating in a nighttime march that will be led by sex workers through the evenings, uh, which will also be a chance to reclaim the evening uh, as a space in which women can be uh, out in the evening, to be safe, to be together, uh, to make noise, uh, and also to have sex workers and trans women at the centre of uh, reclaiming the night.
0: Thanks, Camille. Uh, if people want to find out more about the UK women's strike they can go to womensstrike.org.uk for all updates resources general information i believe there's also a strike fund in operation and there's links through to that from there. Um, Tithi, is there a website people can go to for those interested in the US, our US listeners?
2: Yes. So the website is www.womensstrikeus.org. all one word, dot org. And IWS on March 8th is going to be, so far as we know, in uh, New York, LA, Philadelphia, Maryland, Portland. Uh, several parts of Indiana, uh, Michigan, and uh, Kentucky so far. And we're not entirely sure about the rest of the South, but there are comrades who are organizing there to get on. In the Bay Area, um, sex workers last year played a central role in the organizing and uh, is going to continue to do that. We have just settled on a national call. Last year, if you remember, uh, we had a letter in the Guardian which basically announced the women's strike in the US that was um, co signed by me and several other feminists, and a vast majority of them feminists of color. We have a similar national call out for the um, international women's strike this year, which have already been signed by Angela Davis, Nancy Fraser, Barbara Smith of the Kamahi River Collective, and More recently, Rosa Clemente, who, as you know, is uh, one of the leading Latinx, Puerto Rican, African origin um, activists who was a Green Party uh, presidential candidate and and a fantastic organizer and musician. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. This call is going to go out, but we've already been starting organizing calls um, locally in all of these cities. And uh, one of the policies we developed last year was that March 8th, by necessity – has to be a flexible day of practical activity, and so there should be full regional autonomy. Different parts of the country has to realize its own needs and weave the question of the strike into their local issues. This was a very clear policy that we developed: that there will not be a centralized, you know, democratic centralism line which you cannot um, cross, as it were. So this was going to be things that people decided on regionally, which is why. We created a a platform. So if you agree with the principles of the platform, you should organize the strike in any which way you like in your own area. And so that's sort of what's also happening um, this year. I think it's going to look very different in different parts of the country. Uh, Some parts of the country, there's going to be big marches. But... Uh, We have some plans of an actual action involving workplaces uh, as well. Uh, We're still developing that idea. We are working very closely with um, certain radical sections of the labor movement. And just just to remind people, um, in New York, the New York nurses actually led the New York March, and Judy Gonzalez, who is the president of um, NIASNA, the New York N- uh, Nurses uh, Association, was one of the opening speakers for the rally. And so it would be unfair to say that trade unions have not been responsive to March 8th. Uh, certain critical sections of the trade union movement, the Chicago teachers, for instance, have been very, very uh, supportive and has been key to actually. Um, Implementing uh, March 8th in, in their workplaces and in, in last year, and we hope the same will happen this year. And I think um, we have to keep in mind that while social reproduction cannot be stopped on that day, but for women, both cis and trans, um, that is the day that we strike and not iron because the strike is hot.
0: Well, we'd like to say a very big thank you for both Tithy and Camille for coming on today. It's been a really interesting discussion. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation. We'll be back next month with another episode. Thank you very much for listening.